you sort of think of data as the great equalizer, like we can all look at it and we can all like sort of agree. I think there's a there's a recognition that we can all agree on what the data says and still disagree or, you know, not disagree, but we can still make different choices for our families. And so absolutely. For me, I think that's in some ways that's that's really the power. It's not that the data tells you what to do. It's that the data tells you how to think about it. And then you decide what to do. And and that's a big that's a big focus of a lot of my work. And that's probably the thing I care the most about is the idea of like empowering people with data as opposed to using data to like smash them over their head and tell them that they have to do it in one way or the other. Pull up a seat to the table. You are listening to the Luminary Leadership Podcast, where we elevate successful entrepreneurs into powerful leaders doing work that really matters. After working with countless entrepreneurs, I've noticed a theme. No matter the level of success achieved, they get to this place where they're asking, now what? If you're listening to this, you get it. You're craving more impact. You want to do work that means something, and you want to be known for it, too. Somewhere along the way, it wasn't just about growing a business anymore. It became time to build your legacy. Plus, building the dream at the expense of everything else that matters, family, freedom, joy, is no dream at all. The Luminary Leadership Podcast is where industry leaders come to break through to their next level of achievement, purpose, and impact. I'm your host, Elizabeth Hartke, and I'm here to raise up this generation of leaders, us, so we can do our part in raising up the next generation of little luminaries. Get ready as we break down all things entrepreneurial leadership in a way that isn't being talked about. We both know you don't just need another strategy. It's time for your breakthrough. On today's episode, we are bridging the gap between the two worlds of luminary leadership and raising luminaries because we have the incredible Emily Oster on the show. Emily is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of three incredible books that are fit for parents like you. She has The Family Firm, Crib Sheet, and Expecting Better. So everything from when you're pregnant to when you have a new baby to when you're raising your kids. And she is totally on board with this concept of raising luminaries and raising leaders. And we have a great conversation ahead about the power of giving your kids the space to make their own choices as they do develop in leadership. But a lot of this comes down to us, right? It usually does. You may have seen some of Emily's work outside of her three books because she writes the newsletter for Parent Data. All three of her books are rooted in data. And her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Bloomberg. She has two kids of her own, so she's speaking from both experience. But what I loved about today's conversation is she's also speaking from a place of science-backed data. So today's episode is about raising luminaries, raising leaders, giving your kids the space to develop and grow based in actual science. Before we jump into the episode, I want to remind you, and you will quickly notice in our conversation today, you are going to want to go to luminaryleadershipco.com forward slash true north, because everything we talk about here today is rooted in knowing what you stand for, having your own set of strong values and priorities as a family. So your kids are well aware of them, you are well aware of them, and it's going to make all the difference as you seek to raise these kids upright. Let's get to the show. Emily, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I've spent quite a bit of time at Brown University. I know that that's where you are, Professor. Uh, in my youth, my my aunt was the women's basketball coach there, so not quite ah. the same 
spaces that you're in, but it's a place I really remember fondly. And I grew up in New Hampshire, so we went to Rhode Island all the time. But welcome to the Luminary Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Greetings from Rhode Island and Brown. <laughs> yes, I'm, I miss being out east. We're currently in the Midwest, and Rhode Island is quite the awesome spot. I love Rhode Island. So will you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and why you're so passionate about the work that you do? Sure. So I am a, as you said, I'm a professor uh, of economics at Brown, and I do sort of some academic work on health and healthcare and sort of health decisions that people make. But I do a lot of work, much more of my work these days around data in pregnancy and parenting, both little kids and slightly older kids, and trying to help people work through a lot of the choices that they have to make in their pregnancy with their kids using evidence and data and good decision-making tools to make those those choices sort of approaching your uh, your parenting with the same kind of intensity that many of us approach our approach our jobs and in the last 18 months I've been doing a huge amount of work around covid uh, and helping parents think about choices during the the pandemic um, and a lot of work on policy around schools so I've been sort of a little bit all over the place in the last uh, year and a half okay awesome so data it feels to me like the great equalizer kind of brings us all on the same page and allows us to look hopefully objectively at what we're dealing with. So what led you to want to write on these parenting topics specifically using data? Because you obviously have a pretty, you know, wide berth of things that you cover and are well versed in, but it seems like based on your books and a lot of the content that you put out there, these topics around pregnancy, parenting, uh, seem to be you know, really pulling at your heartstrings and wanting you to create more around those topics? I think it goes back a little bit to when I got pregnant and I sort of came into pregnancy as a person who was very used to using data, not only in my work life where I really am like not just, uh, it's not just that economists in general use data. I am like a particularly data heavy economist. You know, my work is really in like statistics and statistical methods and, and that space. Uh, and so I was used to using data in my regular life. And it's probably worth noting my husband is also an economist. So the sort of language of like, how do we make family decisions at the time with just the two of us? Like, how do we make those decisions? It was really a lot of, we're going to use evidence. And, and when I got pregnant, I sort of found myself confronted with a, a space where there was seemingly a lack of data, or at least the advice I was getting did not seem to be grounded in the kind of data and decision-making that I was used to. And the books, beginning with Expecting Better and then going on, are really a reaction to that and really a, a saying, you know, actually, there is a way to approach this with evidence. And and I, because I believe very strongly in the equalizing power of data, think that one can make better decisions when confronted with actual evidence. And I think there's a piece of it that, you know, you sort of think of data as the great equalizer, like we can all look at it and we can all like sort of agree. I think there's a there's a recognition that we can all agree on what the data says and still disagree or, you know, not disagree, but we can still make different choices for our families. And so absolutely for me, I think that's in some ways that's that's really the power. It's not that the data tells you what to do. It's that the data tells you how to think about it. And then you decide what to do. And, and that's a big, that's a big focus of a lot of my work. And that's probably the thing I care the most about is the idea of like empowering people with data as opposed to using data to like smash them over their head and tell them that they have to do it in one way or the other. 
I appreciate that so deeply, especially in a world where, I mean, there is such diversity of thought and opinion in so many different areas, especially parenting. I mean, if you've ever spent five minutes in a mom group online, like your head could spin around 10 times seeing how there are a million ways to skin the cat. And it's, um, to me, empowering people to be more critical thinkers where they can look at the information and at the data and then put it up against their personal values or the vision they have for their family. The vision I have for mine and the vision you have for yours might be different. So the way that we get there is going to be potentially different. So I really, I appreciate that you highlight that because I think it's an important thing to note. And we're seeing a lot of that right now is like a lot of us are looking at the same data, but having very different emotions and feelings of what we're looking at, even though it might be same numbers, same information. One of the reasons I think that realization is so important that, you know, we can look at the same data and have different and make different decisions is that I think in the, these things around parenting, even outside of COVID, but especially in COVID where we really care, like we're, we're really anxious about it. Or we really care about it. Or we really do want to do the right thing. I think there's a strong tendency to, to sort of have the feeling of like the way that I did it must be right. It must not only be right for me, it must be so right that it's right for everyone else. And I think that some of our kind of efforts to sometimes shame people a little, certainly push them, convince them, whatever it is, is in the space of like trying to defend our own choices. And there's something for me kind of valuable in saying, you know what, like I actually don't have to defend my choices. The choices I make are the choices that I'm making for me. And you could make different choices. And it wouldn't mean that like you thought my choices were bad or that, that, you know, I need to convince you to make, to make the same choices that I do. Amen. I'm with you on that. Thank you for sharing that piece. I think it's, I think it's going to be an important highlight of today's show. So our audience is made up primarily of ambitious entrepreneurs, many of whom are parents, and they're doing their best to juggle both worlds. But I think this common thread in all of them is their desire not just to parent, but to raise these well-adjusted little leaders or, or big leaders. Some of the people listening in have a lot of older kids. And they want to make choices now that will give their children the best chances later. So, okay, like this is me with a six, four, and two-year-old waving the white flag saying, Emily, help me. <laughs> Where do I start? How do I ensure? I know this This is stuff that you focus on all the way from the start, like in pregnancy, making choices. But then um, with your book, you know, the family firm, you talk more about these decision-making processes as parents and just speak to me about your thoughts on these things. Like, where do we begin? There are a million choices that we're faced with every day as parents. Um, how do we look at the data? How do we look at what's in front of us? And what choices are the ones that, uh, you know, you kind of focus on specifically in your book? So I think, you know, in the family firm in particular, which is really kind of focused on these sort of uh, elementary school age and, and up, kind of these broader pictures of, of family decision making, there are two big cornerstones of the first part of the book. Uh, and one of them is about thinking deliberately about what you want your life to look like. And, you know, and I, I mean, both like, what are you trying to accomplish with your kids? Like, what are you trying to, what, like, what are you trying to do in your family? What is the, like the overarching goal of your family, but also on a much more granular level, like, what do you want your day-to-day uh, -to, -day to look like? You know, what, what is the kind of life that you want to be leading? And I, I think, you know, in, in some ways for a lot of people, particularly maybe in your listener space, 
I suspect if people step back, they may actually be doing more things than they think that they would like to be doing that. Like we're almost, we're like doing too much. Um, And then if you step back and you said, really, what do I want my Saturday to look like? Do I actually want it to be like 17 different extracurriculars and three birthday parties? Or do I like sometimes want there to be nothing? Um, And I, so I think there's a little bit of a pitch in the book about like, be a little more deliberate about the kinds of ways you want your life to look. And then there's a, there's a pitch about, you know, for larger decisions, trying to be structured about decision making, trying to let important decisions like where should my kid go to school or what should they do in the summer, you know, things that kind of affect my big portions of my life, rather than letting those decisions either be made sort of haphazardly in, you know, whatever moment you had, or kind of take over your life. There's a there's a business pitch of like, you wouldn't do that, you know, at your business, you wouldn't just constantly think about the decision and rethink it and rethink it and do it differently. And, you know, just like, you would actually make a plan for how to make the decision. And I think that you should be doing that at home too. And then, you know, the book goes through the data on some of what I think are likely for many people, sort of the kinds of things that are going to come up a lot for them, like, or they're going to come up for many of us rather, like school, uh, extracurriculars, you know, some of these choices about screen time, or things that affect like the big chunks of your, uh, of your life. Yeah, I, my husband and I were just having this conversation last night as I was talking about the podcast interview that I'd be doing this morning. And we were talking about how a lot of people have, especially I think entrepreneurs, they're visionaries, many of them. So they, they can see the big picture. They know what matters to them, but the granular is where it gets lost. And there's a lot of autopilot happening where we're like, oh yeah, we want freedom and we want connection points and we want more presence and all those things. But then if you pulled up their calendar, you'd be like, wait a minute, is this the same person? Like they're not reflecting what they're saying they want most. So being both intentional about the things they want, but then ensuring that you honor it in the day-to-day because the day-to-day is life. Like that's ultimately what we're experiencing and what our children are experiencing. We can't say one thing, but then live another way and expect there to be congruence and integrity in that. No, I could not agree more. And I think when I, when I sort of sat down to think about like, what could I suggest that people do to craft this? There's like one thing, which is like, write down your mission statement. And I suspect that like a lot of people are like, I have no problem. Like, here's my mission, you know, to raise successful kids or leaders or nice people, whatever it, whatever it is. But then it's also like, also here's a calendar, like with all the hours and you should write down what you want. Like, what do you want Tuesday to look like? Because your life is Tuesday, right? Your life is many different Tuesdays and Saturdays and Fridays and and all of those days. And if you sort of don't reflect those big picture values or the big priorities in the day to day, if you say, you know, it's really, really crucial to me that my family has dinner together you know, every, like every night or some fraction of the time or like, that's a big priority, but then you've organized your life. So you have four nights a week, there's hockey practice at six o'clock. Well, I guess that you're not achieving one of your main priorities. Um, And I think that's, you know, we kind of, we kind of miss that because the the day-to-day decisions sort of take, take over almost. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that leads to this kind of breakdown of the person too, because when you are not honoring the things that you feel mentally and emotionally should be your top priorities, but it's not being reflected, you constantly feel out of whack. It's kind of like an intangible result, but it ultimately leads to this, um, I don't know, like the decay of a person's quality of life and 
feeling like they're actually living in integrity and alignment. It's like if you're if you're like, man, why do I feel off? Well, it could be because you're saying this is such a high priority for you, but you're not finding ways in the actual reality of your days to ensure that you're protecting that and nurturing that, you know, you're going to feel off. It's not, and it's going to reflect in, in everything. It's going to reflect in your relationships, your business and all the other things that we manage and juggle in the day today with our kids and in our own personal lives as well. So I would love to talk about your research a little bit more. What patterns have you seen among well-meaning parents that ultimately doesn't serve either the parent or the child? Like these are consistent, kind of like what we just talked about, but maybe there are other things that you've seen that parents tend to do and maybe aren't aware of it, or it's just really common where they are making certain decisions that are not necessarily serving the well-being of the family or the child or just the mental health and the, the journey of the parent, whatever it might be. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one big, big piece of this is, is this issue of sort of, are we overscheduled? Like, are mm. we doing more things than, than are really we want to be doing? And I think that because a lot of individual activity decisions are kind of made, what I'd say, like on the margin, like you don't think about how they intersect with all the other ones and they sort of pile up in a way that is, is overwhelming. But I think the other thing I would pull on is I think a lot of parents would say that they are they're interested in promoting independence in their kids, but a lot of the choices that we make over scaffold and that, that sort of independence. So let me give you a very concrete example, which is like one form of independence is your kid needs to remember that they need to put their homework in their backpack. And your kids are probably not quite old enough for this, but like, you know, my kids, I have a kid in fifth grade. And one of the things that is like, that she is supposed to remember to do is to put her homework in her backpack. And in, you know, people could differ in this, but from my standpoint, I think actually that kind of independence is very important because one day she's going to college and uh, she's going to need to remember to put homework in her backpack or whatever is like the hologram equivalent of that. <laughs> in, <laughs> Scary thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know that, so that's a kind of independence. And I think a lot of people would say, yeah, you know, that's, that's something I want those kind of responsibilities, be they, you know, set up your own breakfast, put your stuff in your backpack, remember your soccer shoes, whatever it is. Those are things we want to have our kids do. And yet I think in the moment, it is extremely difficult as a parent not to scaffold those things because you don't want your kid to mess up. Because it, you recognize if you really keep your mouth shut and you really make it the responsibility of your kid to put their homework in their backpack every time, they will forget. If you start, I mean, it doesn't matter when you start this, but certainly if you start this at 10, some of the time they will forget to do it. And it is, I think, particularly for the kinds of people who are listening here and probably for you and I, like that's a hard thing, right? The sort of realization, my kid's going to get to school, their teacher's going to be like, where's your math homework? And they're going to be like, oh no, I forgot it. The thing is, that's really important. And it's probably better that that happen when they are 10 than when they are 20. Right. But it is very hard. And I think we do that kind of scaffolding a lot of the time without thinking about it. And I, I think it's not, it's not exactly that it has to be a mistake. Cause I think some people would say, look, you know, I feel like until my kid leaves home, my job is to basically do everything to, to make like their job is to go to school and, you know, their extracurriculars and do well at those. And, you know, my job is to kind of scaffold everything else and make that possible. I think that's a perfectly fine way to parent, but it is something you'd want to do deliberately. It is a choice you want to make deliberately. And if you want to make a different choice, then you're going to have to like keep your mouth shut. And that's like, for me, that's like one of the hardest things. It's just, I like, was just going to say, same so here. Hard. So, so hard. hard. Because Where's your socks? Do you have your socks? Do you have your socks? Do you have your socks? I must say like 50 times. My husband's like, 
it's okay. Like, don't, they have to remember their own socks. It's hard because it's like in our DNA as parents to want to save our kids from pain, to save our kids from hardship. We just did a podcast episode uh, on this show, but the Raising Luminaries episode on Thursdays about fostering independence because there's a lot of data and there's a lot of you know, people in positions where they're seeing kids come in, whether it be teachers or administrators in schools or in universities saying, man, the caliber of the individual coming into the schools, let's say at the college level is so different. Like parents are accompanying their kids to college interviews or they're, you know, the, one of the women who's been at Stanford for decades and sees the kids all come in was she described them as like veal like humans like they're not <laughs> capable of like handling them they're like these mushy little sad 20 year olds like these are adult human beings but as parents it comes from such a well-meaning place, place such a good place love and it's not you, it comes from love and it, and in some ways it comes from, you know, if you look at the data, like it's not that like being totally uninvolved is, you know, it's like, there's right. definitely a lot of evidence that like involve parenting, talking to your kids about it's like that, that, that has real value. There's just, there's, there's a line between sort of involvement and like, I don't know, producing a veal. <laughs> I thought it was the funniest it was way like, to put it. That's a really funny way to put it. Um, and I've seen, you know, I've seen some of her work and I think it's, it's sort of, you see, you know, you see it at the college level too. Yeah. And I, I think, but I think it really does. It comes from, it comes from a place that it, it's just, it's actually like very hard if you have the, mm -hmm. the sort of resources and like to do those things, it's very hard to be like, no, I'm going to like, I'm going to let you fail sometimes. I'm going to mm -hmm. let you, um, you know, sleep through your alarm and I, or I'm going to like, whatever is the thing I'm going to let you you know, I'm going to let you take too long to make your breakfast and then tell you you can't eat breakfast because right. we have to go to school. It's like, that's like so mean, you know, <laughs> it's so mean. I know it's it's such a like mind F for parents because it, it really does. I don't know, like butt heads with what feels innate sometimes. And even like my two year old, you know, we're getting ready to to rush out the door. We're going to church on Sunday. We're going to visit somebody. We're getting the kids off to some activity and she wants to put her own shoes on. And I'm like, oh, my God, this takes so long. I'm so like, no, long. I could just do it. But then I'm like, you know what? It's on me. It's my responsibility to anticipate that she's going to want to do that and to build in the extra time to help her foster this yeah. sense of independence and allow her to walk out the door with her shoes on two wrong feet or two totally different shoes, two left two shoes. Two different shoes. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's like, it's whatever. Times. I'm not here for the fashion statement. Like, it's about the development <laughs> of the kids. So there are certain things. I would say, I, I guess I would ask you as a mom, you know, like, where do we draw the line? So, meaning, I can deal with my kid walking out of the house with two different shoes. I don't love it. It's not great for picture day. Whatever. It's fine. But I lived through the 90s. So I had a lot more hideous dress statements yeah. than my kid wearing two different shoes. Absolutely. Let's be real. Scrunchies. Scrunchies. Um, yeah. Side, side yeah, but these things are coming back. They're oh, starting I know. My to, daughter like, has so many cool. scrunchies. I know. We're there. I wasted <laughs> mom. The mom jeans are coming. They're coming. I guess that means that we're old when something comes yes, back into that's fashion. Right. That's what it means. Yep. Yes. No, but no. I digress. So is there a like aside from, you know, them getting hit by a bus, you don't you don't say like, oh, I told you to look both ways, but I had to let you get hit by that bus. But things that obviously don't cause physical harm. Are there lines we draw where we're like, we throw them a bone sometimes? Like if they're, you know, if they do have that big interview and they are about to sleep through their alarm, like, do we let them miss the interview? At what point do we kind of 
make the choices that are like, okay, this one time, but then I have a conversation with them after about how, you know, I just pulled them out of the fire, but it's really their responsibility. Is it up to discernment case by case? Like, how do we figure this out? Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure there's like a, like a great, you know, great answer to that. Clearly there are moments when like, you just, you know, you know, that, that, that sort of missing this would debit, like messing up in some way would sort of devastate your kid in a way that like, you know, the stakes are too high, you know? And I think that's, I think that's a, that's a piece of it. You know, I also like, I think for us and in general, we sort of do a lot of like, I'd almost say like sort of the first time we'll scaffold it. And then the second time we'll, we'll, and then we'll like talk about how can we make that not happen again? You know? So there was like an episode, like my daughter has to have a, like a swipey card for school. And so in like the, you know, the first week of school, like there was a day when like she forgot it, we were halfway to school. And like, so we like sort of sent, it's not that far. So like my husband like went back and got it and brought it. And, and that was sort of like, okay, that's once. But then, then the conversation at the end of the day was like, okay, like, how does that not happen again? Like now there's a checklist and like your, it's your responsibility for checking the checklist and that, you know, that's sort of a piece of this. And like, we're not going to scaffold that again. If you don't have your lunch card, like, you know, you're going to need to like figure that out, that out for yourself. So I think there's a sort of like, there's a, there's a freebie, there's kind of a, like a freebie version of it. Yeah. Um, but I think in general, the idea would be to like sort of follow up the freebie with like, how can I help you make this not, how can I help you make this possible? I think that's the key piece, though, that a lot of people miss this step where it's like, okay, strike one, next time it's on you. But what you did that was different between strike one and strike two, you built in a tool with your child to help them ensure that it doesn't happen again, like that checklist. So it's like a visual thing that a kid can understand versus saying like, gee, I sure hope you figure this out on your own. Otherwise, you're going to be hungry next time. You know, you talk through the process of, all right, what? was the reason you forgot it? Like, you just have too much on your plate? Like, do you need a visual reminder? So how can we build those tools for our kids or with our kids to support them in the process of improvement versus just putting the expectation on a 10 year old of like, don't make a mistake again, because that's not the that's not the essence of what we're trying to do either. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a little bit like my kid's school does a lot of this like growth mindset thing, which like was totally not when, like my childhood was not about the growth mindset. Um, we were not growing our mindsets. We were just about, I don't know what my, it was a different <laughs> mindset, not growth, something else. Um, but I think, yeah. you know, that, that language has been, which, which her school uses a lot, which I think is much more common in this, in this sort of generation, that, that mindset I think has been very helpful as, as a sort of language, like, okay, like, you know, it's okay to mess up. Mm-hmm. But like messing up is not messing up does not mean you like you're a terrible person or like whatever. But it is like it is an opportunity to grow, and part of growing is not just don't mess up, but like try to figure out how we're gonna you know how we're gonna do better the next time. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about in Crib Sheet, your other book, this idea of more relaxed parenting. So. What does that ultimately look like from your perspective? And why do you feel like it's worth pursuing? Because it sounds incredibly appealing to me, like this concept of more relaxed parenting. Okay, that sounds really good. It probably doesn't involve wine. So how can I have more relaxed parenting without more wine? Without more wine, right? It's some wine. I mean, some wine. Well, I mean, mean, let's be real. You can't do it without. (laughs) No wine. Um, I mean, so I think the, the basic idea both there and I think to some extent in the in family form also is that like s- some substantial portion of our parenting anxiety like arises from the constant second guessing and that 
you know, and I think this, this comes up for me sort of most saliently with the little kids, but I think it's true, true with adults too. You know, I've made some choice about like, I'm going to sleep train my kid. And so, okay. So like I've decided to sleep train my kid and then I, you know, show up at the playground and somehow I say, oh, you know, I don't know why you're sharing this with people at the playground, but like, let's say you mentioned it. And then someone else is like, you know, I can't believe you would do that. You know, here's the, like, here are all the reasons why your kid's going to hate you. Um, or, you know, your breastfeeding, like whatever are these early, sort of early life choices. I think that part of what is anxiety provoking is the second guessing that comes from, you know, what happens when people tell you, you know, that you're doing it wrong, right? So the sort of moment of like, oh, like you're, you know, you're not doing it right. Here are all the things. And, and I think the pitch in, in, in crib sheet is really like, look, if you are confident about having made that choice and the right choice for you, and if you also recognize that like other people's choices are not your choices, it is easier to have those conversations not provoke the kind of like restless anxiety that that is common. And just to be able to say, you know, to yourself or to them, like, you know what, like, well, this is just the choice we made and we're going to like, we're going to like move on. And so I think that's, that's kind of the that's kind of the the idea there, and I think a similar thing applies in this in this older kid space. That you know you're gonna you're all gonna make really different choices, and you know there's always gonna you know for me it's the kind of like moment of the of the parent who's like oh are you like we're enrolled in coding class right your kid's doing coding class where you just want to be like Ugh, you know it's like but then just be like you know what no we're not doing that because it's not like that it doesn't fit in for us that's not our thing mm-hmm. yeah. So where, what role does health play in this? I, I know that you speak about that. That's a passion and a core value for our family with a lot of defining what health actually means versus maybe how other people or society might define health. But can you talk about why that's foundational? Is it sometimes overlooked? Like, is, the, is this a category where we could really be serving our children and our families more? Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I write a lot about about food. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for a lot of us that that overlaps with the idea of sort of like how we're creating a healthy diet, a healthy set of, you know, interactions with food. And, you know, in some ways, I think it's, it's a huge piece for a lot of us. It is also a very complicated part of the, of the data because it isn't obvious that there's like one healthy, you know, I mean, it's definitely not obvious. There's one healthy way to do it, but it's all, you know, a lot of what we know about kind of what makes a good diet and how we should think about promoting health is actually like the, the evidence there is pretty poor. That's a lot of what I work on. Like or just our evidence on that stuff is not very, uh, is not very good. And so I think in some ways it may be better to sort of frame that not as like, there is a healthy way to do it and let's try to find that but rather to frame it as like, you know, our family has a particular way we want to be interacting with food and diet. And it may not be the same, you know, for all, you know, for all people like, and, and even sort of putting completely aside the health pieces, you know, there are families where people will be like, look, it's really important to me that my kid eat a lot of different things. The like, mm-hmm. they be like a person who is like, I want to do what I can to make them comfortable, like eating in a lot, like a lot of different ethnic foods, spicy foods, not spicy, like that's just like, that's important to me because it's something that I care about. And there are other families who are like, oh, that's, I don't care. That's not like something I want to be investing in. And I think that that is a perfectly reasonable set of things. But again, it's sort of useful to say in it, in it, because some making some of those kinds of investments, that is going to take some time, that is going to take some, um, you know, some work, it's useful to start by saying, is that important to you or not? Yeah, 
Yeah. And giving it your own personal and or family definition of what that looks like too. Yeah. Because I think sometimes, you know, I just don't believe in the blanketing statements that everybody has the same exact health fingerprint and what's right for one person is, you know, right for another, even to the point where, you know, once you start to really understand your child or yourself, I mean, there are things that are literally toxic to my system just because like my body doesn't handle it, but they're, they're really healthy foods. Like I'm, I can't eat celery because it's just, it's really like drags me. I feel super sluggish. It's so random. It's friggin' celery. It's like water, yeah. but, it's just water. but it's healthy. Right. But so yeah. even down to like those points, like understanding your child uniquely or your family uniquely. And to your point, what you value, like that variety and a kid that has really a broad palate and wants to have is more cultured in foods. And that's awesome. So understanding what that means and really defining that I think is a critical piece. Uh, and it's not going to be the same for everybody. I yeah. do think everybody could probably benefit from cutting out more of like the junk that's being pushed at yeah. kids Prices. and marketed right. to yes. kids. Like that's kind of a universal thing in my humble opinion. Uh, but aside from that, I feel like there's a lot of, opportunity for personalization in the health process. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that there are sort of things maybe like, you know, there are some foods that I think we should, we should be at best sometimes foods, um, you know, mm -hmm. just given what we know about, about kind of general health stuff, but then within the space of, of, you know, of foods that are not in that, in that category, I think that there's just, you know, there's just a lot of, just like a lot of ways to, to do it. And I think to, you know, to your point that it's worth listening to what kids how kids feel about different kinds of foods and sort of thinking about how to, how to support, you know, like one of my kids really likes meat and the other kid really like, doesn't like my daughter, she just like, doesn't like meat that much. Um, but my son really, really does. And so we sort of try to like make it so they both get, so we sort of like compromise some and we, and we kind of, kind of think about that. I think she just does it. Yeah. We just try not to make her eat chicken. <laughs> chicken. <laughs> well, so I have uh, one more question for you, since the conversation on this show is often around leadership, especially when it comes to our kids. And, and that, too, can be defined in so many different ways. Uh, but for us, it's more of just this opportunity of, of fostering that independence, but also helping our kids really tap into who they're called to be individually and really supporting them in that growth process and helping them identify kind of the sparks along the way that can shine some light on like, oh, this is an area of our child that we can really help develop because it seems to light them up versus saying like they have to be perfectly well-rounded in every single thing ever. So I'm, I'm curious just whether it's data or whether it's just your personal thoughts on developing those leadership muscles in our children and what that looks like. I know we talk a lot here about you can't develop the leader in your child if you're not really willing to develop the leader within yourself because ultimately you're the one leading that child. So there's a lot of that personal responsibility on us as the parents, not to just point at our kids and say like, you need to be this or you need to do this, but mm -hmm. to actually embody it, to show them. But I, I would just love your, even just general thoughts on developing leadership in our children. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think one, one thing that's really driven home for me in this space a lot over the last 18 months is the sort of recognition that like your, your kid is not you and mm -hmm. that the things that they are, you know, some of your kids are more like you than others, but like that, that, you know, that particularly as our kids get older, they're going to be good at different things than we are. And it is in some ways very easy to look at the ways in which like 
you have, you know, you, the adults have, have sort of achieved and kind of expect those things to be the ways that you're the sort of places that your kid is going to excel at. And, and one of the things that I think is hard is kind of picking out the things that your kids are good at that are different than the things that you're good at. And so, you know, over the, so we spent a lot of time at home in the March of 2020. Um, and, it, you know, the spring of 2020 was a lot of time with the kids. And, you know, in some ways that was complicated. But, in you know, in some ways, I think my, my daughter, who was like nine at the time, it was a good opportunity to like, like hear more about what to almost like learn more about what she was like as an older person. I kind of realized that there were some things um, you know, some things that she's very good at that I'm terrible at, like, like understanding what, what people think and like sort of managing people She's like much better at people management than me. Um, and then there are some things that like I'm good at that she doesn't, you know, that, that she isn't, that she isn't as good at. But I think that there's a lot of value in saying, okay, how can I scaffold that? How can I both emotionally scaffold that, but also like just practically like sort of look for opportunities for my kids to feel like they are achieving something and they are good at something. And maybe that something is like different than the things that they're, but just that, that like, there's a, there's a real value to sort of that support. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we created a tool for that, just kind of going through that same process with our kids, having conversations at bedtime, just a, around the dinner table and realizing literally the same realization that you're talking about. So just for the listeners, if you're looking for something to kind of help you in that process, if you go to luminaryleadershipco.com forward slash spark, uh, it's a workbook that really helps foster that. It's just a free resource that we have found to be really helpful just in our own family and among friends and the people that we've shared it with within our team. Uh, because I just think that this is the intention. Like we all want this, but sometimes it, we need something that grounds us in the intention of doing that process. So where can our listeners come find you? Talk a little bit about your three amazing books so that they can go online and order those right up. And uh, where can they connect with you? Yeah. So, so there are three books. Um, if you're pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, there's Expecting Better. If you have a little tiny baby, there's Crib Sheet. Um, and then the most recent one is A Family Farm, which is more about uh, kind of parenting sort of elementary school kids. So hopefully one of those is right for, or maybe all of them, you, you know, you can work through the series. Um, the other place that's really good to find me is I have a newsletter called Parent Data, which is on Substack. Um, and I write it twice a week and it is sort of like the books and some of it's about COVID and it's, it's a, a thing that I really like doing and I think has been um, helpful to a lot of people. So that's probably the best place to find me. Yeah. And I will link to that in the show notes so that everybody can get access to that along with linking to your, your three awesome books. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Emily. This was such a, an awesome conversation. And I really think it's just going to serve our listeners deeply because I know these are, these are private conversations they're having among themselves or thoughts they're having, and it helps to flesh it out. And just from the angle of, you know, two moms speaking to each other, too, it's not always such a, um, you know, sometimes we can really leverage the data. Other times it's nice to just know that you're not alone. I totally agree. Thank you for having me. This is great. Absolutely. I hope today's episode gave you exactly what you needed. And if it spoke to you, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next juicy episode. And don't be shy. I don't bite often. So come connect with me over on Instagram at Eliz Hartke. And if there's a topic or a question, a guest you want to hear on the show or an idea you have for us, just reach out and share your thoughts. We do this for you. So the more you tell us, the more we can serve. We pick a luminary each week from our social posts. 
So if you want to be entered into our Luminary of the Week drawing, then comment, save, and share the Instagram post from this episode. We want to lead and spoil you. Thank you for spending some time with me. I really do appreciate you. So tune in next time to keep building that legacy and doing the work that really matters.